Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. This week, we saw the end of a dramatic six-day teacher strike in Los Angeles Unified. It was the first strike in 30 years in the district, and it got widespread attention across the state and nationally, with implications for other teachers' unions around the state and the country. The union has overwhelmingly approved the contract, but the school board has yet to vote on it, and it will first receive a financial analysis from the County Office of Education. It seems inconceivable that the school board will reject the contract, although the county analysis will be really important as to whether or not there's actually money to pay for the commitments that the parties made. What was notable, to me at least, uh, John, about the agreement is that teachers fought for and got the district to agree to several provisions that had really had nothing to do with salaries or benefits, but had to do with a range of services that the union feels will help kids do better in school and, by so doing, help teachers be more effective. This included a commitment to hiring more counselors, librarians, school nurses, creating community schools, and even green spaces on school campuses. To get perspectives on the impact of a strike, we turn to school board member Nick Melvoin and to John Rogers. He's a professor at UCLA's Graduate School of Education and Information Studies, and he's director of UCLA's Institute for Democracy, Education, and Access. We asked John Rogers to comment on the union's insistence on a range of provisions that, as I mentioned, had nothing to do directly with teachers' salaries or benefits. We can look upon this strike as an extension of what sometimes referred to as social justice unionism. The idea that unions need to both bargain for the bread and butter issues, but also bargain for broader quality of life conditions for the communities that they're serving. And so the union really emphasized throughout this strike the need to improve the quality of teaching and learning conditions so that young people in Los Angeles have the education that they need in order to survive and thrive. In your view, to what extent was this a victory for the union? I mean, did they really get more than they would have gotten if they hadn't gone out on strike? I think it was a victory for the teachers' union, both because of some of the material changes that emerged in the context of the negotiated agreement, but also because fundamentally they shifted the conversation about public education in Los Angeles and in California more generally. They shifted the conversation in the sense that the broader Los Angeles community came to look upon teachers as valued actors who were looking out for the education in the community at large public policy poll that Loyola University conducted at the end of the first week of the strike showed that more than 80% of the Los Angeles public supported the teachers. That's pretty remarkable. The other way that the conversation shifted was that in the course of the negotiations, you first saw the county come in and say, we also share a responsibility for the developmental needs of young people in Los Angeles. And so we're putting in funds for more nurses. You saw the city come in. The mayor, Mayor Garcetti, played a substantial role in the negotiation process and also committed to working with the county and the state um, in the months to come to try to bring more resources to the school district. 
And so I think that is a critical change in the sense that now you see different governmental bodies agreeing that they share this responsibility for enhancing the developmental needs of young people. It's not just a school district issue anymore. There's no question, John, that it seemed to galvanize public support for teachers and for the larger cause of public education. So the question is, moving forward, is can you put that electricity in a bottle and carry it forward so that if, for example, there's a parcel tax put on the ballot, will the same firefighters who joined the teachers then turn around and support a parcel tax for education? And will this lead to change in Sacramento in terms of a tax policy, more money for schools, do you think? I think that there are hopeful signs, and those hopeful signs come from the energy that exists on the ground amongst the teaching force. It resides as well in the new relationships between community members and teachers that were fostered both on the picket lines and then in broad public engagement efforts. You see it in some of the the Hollywood stars that came out and sat on the picket lines and worked with the teachers. And then you see it in the fact that national politicians, several of the contenders for the Democratic nomination in 2020, weighed in on this. So there's a sense of energy. There's a sense that this is a pathway that people want to be part of that I think speaks to the potential for more mobilization, more energy toward both parcel tax and potentially toward the split role initiative that's likely to be on the 2020 ballot in California. John, you mentioned charters earlier. You co-chaired the We Choose All Coalition Task Force last year in LA Unified. So how do the actions and the resolution calling for a cap on charter schools in LA Unified and some of the other controls on charters that are implied or explicit in the agreement, how does that jive with the recommendations that your task force came up with? The negotiated agreement begins a conversation here in Los Angeles that I think is going to have to continue at the state level. One of the ways it begins the conversation is it calls for the Board of Education to hold a vote on a resolution that would require the state to establish a statewide cap on charter schools. The other way in which the negotiated um, agreement touches upon charters is it calls for the local UTLA chapter head to have a say in the co-location process, that they have to be participating in that. They have to be told that co-location is going to occur and under what conditions. And co-location is when you have a charter school that's located at an existing campus. It's required by Proposition 39, and it's a process that's often created great conflict between charter schools and district schools and often led district schools to feel like they're losing critical conditions like a parent room that then gets taken away as a new school comes into their campus. Okay, just last question. Now, in, within days of the strike, how are you feeling? I mean, you're, you've been a longtime observer, critic of the school district, and I'd say more you know, supportive of the union in many ways. But are you feeling excited about what comes next or relieved? I'm feeling a sense of relief, but also excitement. I think that the efforts in Los Angeles of the teachers union continue the mobilization that played out over the last year in the so-called Red for Ed movement in West Virginia and Kentucky and Colorado and Oklahoma whereby teachers mobilized on behalf of improving the conditions of teaching and learning in their community schools. And I think that we've seen in Los Angeles that that movement can get carried forward into a blue state. 
in ways that connect with the public, that resonate, and that hopefully build a movement for educational justice in the months and years to come. That was UCLA education professor John Rogers. We're now going to go to Nick Melvoyan. He's a member of the LA Unified School Board and a former teacher in the district. He was elected to the board less than two years ago when he got strong backing from charter school advocates. We asked him whether the school district has the funds to make good on the contract that they approved this week. I think there is a contingency that is built in implicitly in this agreement. I mean, I had said and maintained throughout this process that this wasn't a question of values as much as it was of economics. And we wanted to lower class sizes and bring in more nurses and counselors. And we wanted to give our teachers a raise. But we were told two weeks ago by the County Office of Education that they were going to appoint a fiscal advisor because we can't spend you know, one-time funds for ongoing costs. The economics of the deal, at least in the next year or two, look similar to what we offered before the strike, 6% raise, 3% of that retroactive, lower in class size. Gradually, I think the acknowledgement from the union of our financial problems is that the agreement extends beyond a year and a half and looks at this gradual class size reduction and this gradual increase in nurses. One, because we don't have the money. And two, because there are these nuances. Nursing, for example, you know, we have about 40 paid unfilled nursing positions because there's a nursing shortage. So I think there's the whole political fight out on the streets. But in the room, there was an acknowledgement of the realities of the difficult spot we're in. And I do think that, you know, this board has talked about a partial tax. We've now collectively talked with the union about advocacy in Sacramento, and that is going to be necessary for this agreement to work and also for us to go even beyond the agreement to do what we all want to do, which is lower class size even more dramatically and support our teachers even more generously. There is a lot of backloading of staffing uh, additions in the third year, Nick, and does that imply that there needs to be additional revenue that the district doesn't have now, whether it's through a parcel tax or whether a split role initiative that will be on the state ballot in 2020, that these need to pass in order for this to balance out? I think so. The contingency itself is not written into the agreement, at my read. Um, and I know that's something that the union was very adamant they didn't want. But, you know, financial bottom lines are bottom lines. And when we have growing pension costs and health care costs, now the governor's budget that he introduced helped. The money we got from the county for nurses helped, but in order to maintain this and also pay out our fixed costs um, and find more ways to support our kids and our teachers, we are going to need to have one of those things pass. What I hope is the legacy of this strike is that it's undeniable that the union galvanized the attention not just of the Los Angeles community but the national community towards the conditions in our schools. And so if the tens of thousands of people who honked and marched and tweeted are actually serious about standing with teachers, then they will vote for that split role measure and they will vote for a partial tax, which we've talked about. And I think there's been disagreements about timing and looking at polling and also given that it's a regressive tax, how do we make sure it works for our families? Um, But we're going to need their support and I'm hopeful that we're going to get it given the activism we've seen in the last few weeks. We're talking with Nick Melvoin. He's on the LA Unified School Board. Mayor Garcetti talked about a new culture of collaboration that he thinks this agreement heralded. How do you see it? Do you think this is going to lead to more collaboration between the teachers, the union, and the district? Because uh, relations have been terrible. 
They have. And the relations between the union and the district have been pretty awful since I was a teacher and union member 10 years ago. In my year and a half on the board, I definitely haven't had a day where I felt like we're kind of collaboratively working towards the same goal. I think that the problem, too, over the last few months was that this was framed by the union as an us versus them fight. The protagonists, Alex Caputo-Pearl, our superintendent, Austin Buechner, the board members were seen as heroes or villains, depending on what side you're on. And so to then say, okay, great, we reached this agreement and now we're all best friends, I think will fall on deaf ears given the vitriol that was out there during the strike. That being said, I have maintained throughout this that we are on the same side and that we all do want the same things. You know, even some of the contentious issues like charter regulation, I think a lot of us agree with. And so I'm not Pollyannish about this, but I'm hopeful that if, if we have shared aims that require the kind of mutual agreement and collaboration, such as a partial tax, where if the board doesn't endorse it fully and try to raise some money, it might not pass. And if the union doesn't endorse it and embrace it fully, it might not pass, that that out of necessity will come a collaboration. But I think it's going to take a while to maintain, to bridge some of these divides, given that this became so personal and hostile over the last few months. We haven't heard much from the advocacy community yet on the contract. Are you confident that the commitments that the district has made for low-income foster kids, English learners who get extra money under the funding formula, that uh, that money will be there for the commitments that the district has made to them? The problem with across-the-board investments, like a nurse in every school or a counselor, I think there are two problems. One is that they're not necessarily equitable. And two is that they take discretion away from principals and school sites in a district that you know, where a one-size-fits-all model doesn't work. I have been a critic of that going forward. I think the public sentiment was so overwhelming last week around give the teachers everything they want that I think a lot of people who had another opinion were quiet for fear of public shaming. But you know, if you're going to invest in every school with one nurse, well, then you're not investing equitably in our schools that need them more. If you are saying that we're going to have an extra counselor at every school, even if we all support counselors, you're taking away the principal's discretion to say, you know, instead of a counselor, I want another math teacher. So like the nuance over nurses or like the nuance over how do you pay for it, it doesn't fit on a picket sign, but it's now the, the reality that we're going to have to address with the union over the next few years. Nick Melvoin, just add one last question and then we'll let you go. I wanted to ask you the same question uh, we asked John Rogers uh, now in the wake of the strike and it's been settled. Are you feeling relieved that it's over? Are you feeling kind of excited and energized about the next step, some combination thereof? How are you feeling? I'm relieved that teachers are back in classrooms and that kids are back. The sentiment at schools yesterday was one of relief. There were a lot of lovely welcome back signs, baked goods. But I really do think that this was not the end, you know, maybe the, the kind of the beginning of the end in terms of like this first fight. And now that people's eyes are open to the conditions in our schools, conditions that have existed for a while. When I was a middle school teacher in Watts a decade ago, my classes were too large. And I'm glad that people are now paying attention. But I think the hard work begins now. I also think, too, that given our financial constraints, some of these agreements like lowering class sizes by one kid next year, we all need to do better. If the legacy of this is that, okay, we will reduce class sizes by one kid per year over the next few years, it's not going to be quote-unquote historic. I think if the both sides come together and agree to increase revenue in a state that has disinvested for 40 years, if we agree to talk about quality and equity, then I think it has the potential to be a really historic turning point. But that really requires the adults coming together on behalf of our kids. Thank you. We've been talking with Nick Melvoin.
school board member, been at the center of this conflict, and hopefully get back to focusing on what's important here, which is uh, kids in the classroom. Indeed. Thank you all. Lewis, I think it's important that the contract dealt with class sizes as well as the general conditions for kids in schools, the creation of community schools with services. Nonetheless, I have reservations as to whether or not there will be the amount of funding that's needed to meet those commitments in the contract. You know, voters in 2020 will be asked to amend Prop 13 to provide more money for schools, and that's not going to be easy to do. Not easy to do, John. That's a vast understatement. Hasn't really been done to any significant extent. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is an understatement indeed. But then there's the issue of a parcel tax in LA Unified that voters may be asked to pass. And that will also be difficult. The last time that it was on the ballot, it failed. It has to get a two-thirds vote. And uh, at least up to now, it's been hard to get voters to support it, as it is in many districts. Well, we'll see if the public support, which is indicated in the polls and the number of people who came out to support teachers, whether that translates into a vote yes. We've talked a lot about LA Unified, but this strike had perhaps some national and certainly statewide implications. Well, I think more than perhaps, the reality is that this strike took place in less than a year after the Janus Supreme Court ruling, which limited the fees that unions could collect from their members or others they were representing. And uh, there were fears, concerns that this would really decimate public sector unions. It was also, I, I think, the teachers' unions were really a target of that lawsuit. And what this strike demonstrated was that unions are far from down and out. UTLA was able to mobilize tens of thousands of teachers, got a lot of public support, and uh, they were able to get some concessions from the school district. So I think this is going to energize other teachers, and not only teachers, but other public sector unions around the country. And we're going to have to leave it there, John, for this week. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Shuka Kalatari. Thank you, Shuka. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. We also have music from Ed Source's Justin Allen. If you like what you hear, write us a review on iTunes. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.